Tell me a tale of how we set sail in search of a brilliant isle. With the wind in our favour and crisps of each flavour, we sailed in considerable style. Till we came ashore with books galore and a lovely radio voice, which we've definitely mentioned before. Welcome to the Island of Brilliant. The podcast that treasures everything that's brilliant in children's books. That's the best shanty yet. <laughs> uh, what's your favourite uh, crisp flavour, Frank? I only I only acknowledge the existence of one flavour. Uh, is it even a flavour? It's salt and vinegar. And the oh, rest are just okay. not flavours. I see, I thought you were going to be my crisp brethren because I only acknowledge, well... 90% acknowledge ready salted as well, the only re- flavour because it's potato flavour. It's the flavour. Yeah. The other 10%, I will allow a sweet chilli for that 10%. Yes, sweet chilli's only recently come onto my radar and I would allow a sweet chilli. And I think I get, yeah. completely get you about ready salted. And if I'm making crisps, I only put salt on. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean if you're making, if you're making crisps? How much time do you have on your hands? Not enough Frank? time to get in a little <laughs> boat and sail to a co-op to buy a bag of crisps. I've got enough well, time to dig up a potato mo- from your allotment, <laughs> slice it very thinly, put it in a bag with a couple of spoons of oil, mm. shake it up, shake it up, shake it up, and throw it in the oven when it's hot. Hang on, we've got an oven. You're <laughs> <laughs> keeping that quiet. <laughs> Well, where did you think on raw when chicken I'm bones? serving you pizzas and goulashes, mm. where did you think I was getting them from? Getting them just Eats were popping into Brilliant Bay. Didn't like to ask. You never know. If you change the postcode, they'll get anywhere. <laughs> anyway, listen, have you got any of these crisps upon your person? Mm-hmm. Crunch, crunch, crunch. There you go. Yeah. All right. If you can pass Proper me a packet and I would let me know while I, while I work my way through this sack of ready salted crisps. <laughs> Uh, what have you been reading, Frank? I've been reading two things. One is I've been reading The Skull by John Classen, which I'm incredibly mm-hmm. envious of. It's just a amazingly dark little fairy tale, which in the notes at the back he says is based on a real fairy tale. But he's sort of changed it round a bit in his head. And it's John Classen, we know, is the guy who wrote This Is Not My Hat and I Want My Hat Back. and it's got these amazing, amazing illustrations, but it's very, very, very dark. It's really dark. Okay. It's the story of a relationship between a little girl and a skull. And at some point, you kind of think the skull might be bad. And then the skull is kind of good. And you can see a kind of happy ending coming, but it doesn't come. So it's like, it's like oh. Edward Gorey a bit. It reminds me of Edward Gorey, who I absolutely adored. Yes, I love Edward Gorey. Um, yeah. So perversely dark. Um, Who was it that died of ennui? Z- Zilla died of ennui. We can go through them all. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that another time. Sorry, I, I cut across you. No, I was just with a. That's a really good reference because the Gashikum Tinies is a Edward Gorey alphabet of children with unusual deaths. I love it. It's yeah. so good. And, and I, is it fair to say that you can see that Tim Burton was ever so slightly influenced by Edward Dory, wasn't he? A little bit. A little, a little tiny bit. bit a, a, a tribute band is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very much yeah. so. He's the bootleg Dory. He's the, the bootleg, bootleg Dory. Yeah. So I've got a little story about Edward Dory. My friend interviewed him 
and after he died, we used to ring his answer phone so we could hear Edward Gorey's voice <laughs> when he gone. What was his voice like? It was profound. <laughs> and when when he was interviewing him, he knitted a bat. It was my friend Stephen Appleby who interviewed him, uh, who's a cartoonist too, and he knitted a bat. Edward yeah. Gorey knitted a bat and gave him a knitted bat. Oh my, oh my goodness, that's amazing. Yeah, dark picture books. The Skull is definitely up there with the best of the dark picture books. Then the other thing I've been Fantastic. reading, The Skull is in just out, but the other thing I've been reading, and I'm reading it because of you, because of Grimwood. I kept describing Grimwood as oh. the kind of anti-Wind in the Willows. So I've just reread <laughs> Wind in the Willows. And it's so amazing. It's brilliant, isn't it? Oh my goodness. And it's, what, what's going to happen to that book? Because it's obviously quite difficult for a child to read now. You know, it's, a van it's set in a vanished world where you know, cars are a new invention and the relationships in it that, you know, Mole and Ratty are two Edwardian gentlemen who like to have sardines on toast around the fire. Like, that, rela <laughs> that kind of relationship's gone. You know, th th those kind of friendships. Has it? Yeah, and it's completely male. The whole book is male. True, true. It's dated, but, but dated in the way that Tess of the D'Urbervilles is dated or Dickens is dated but we don't really ask children to make that stretch when they're reading books and I just it really hit me that you're missing out I don't know I listened to it you'd listen to it that's okay yeah that's we we, we listened to it me and um, when I was off the island with my young charge um, we, we, we listened to it in a cut is he missing you no he's fine I get messages in bottles every day and I haven't seen one for you yeah <laughs> Brutal, yet true. No, apparently he's, um, I don't know, I think he's having lots of screen time and I've just given him a hotline to the local fast food chicken place. Okay. So he's um, he's fine. He's having okay. a wholesome childhood without me. Um, but you can listen to it on audio. Yes, we, you know, we were captivated by it. It was fantastic. It is astonishing. It's so, I, th I think, I do know, understand what you mean about the context of the, the, the story is kind of set in a disappearing world, maybe, but... I think the characters are so strong, the dialogue so rich, yeah. that that helps you make that leap. Well, as um, a book, it's I mean, it's it's like a library. There's so many different kinds of yeah. book in it. It's got these amazing, sort of poetic interludes, and then this incredibly funny Mr. Toad stuff. And the book it most reminded yeah, me of, yeah. what, of was Three Men in a Boat, which yes. seems like quite a light little thing, and actually, the, if you try to better it, you you really can't. And it's kind no, of like. The, the yeah. poetic passages in The Wind and the Willows always, they take my breath away. Like the description of Badger's home. <gasps> Doesn't it sound, it's, from what I remember, I can't bring it back to mind word by word, but I just remember being so, like that's the perfect room, isn't it? Badger's room. Perfect. It just sounds so cosy yeah. and kind of, it's everything you would well, want. Well, it's brilliant about home as well. Because I mean, when, when Bowl finds his old home, which he thinks is sort of nothing compared yeah. to all the other homes, because... Toad's got this hall and Badger's yeah. got this amazing labyrinth. And it's so, it's so moving about home, you know? And I love how appalling Toad is, but we still love him. He's absolutely He's terrible. the worst person, yeah. He's the worst, and yeah. yet. <laughs> and yet. I mean, if, he, if Toad was around, Toad would have been invited onto her Vital News for you, probably. I would have charmed the nation and become Prime Minister. I mean, that is well, he'd, have been, he'd definitely be on uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, I think. <laughs> he'd last a day oh god I hope they don't decide to film that on our island <laughs> do you know that's the way that we could update Wind in the Willows Yeah. get them all on I'm a Celebrity get children's characters get beloved children's book characters on I'm a Celebrity that's a fantastic idea because I was reading it thinking this is one of 
the greatest works of art I've ever engaged with and I worried yeah. that it would be somehow inaccessible and you put my mind at rest as you so often do well do you know what if you're so, this is a neat jumping off point for me because you're talking there about male friendships in, yeah. in the wind of the willows essentially and um that leads me on if I may to yes. talk about what I've been reading which is um which is I've been reading a new book which is called The Council of Good Friends. Oh. And it's by Nikesh Shutler. Have you heard of You, you will yeah. have heard of Nikesh because yeah. he's a very accomplished novelist, screenwriter. Yeah. He edited The Good Immigrant. You know, he can turn his hand to anything, it seems. This is his first go at writing younger fiction. Um, this is illustrated as well, I should say, by Rochelle Falconer. Lovely illustrations. And this is about a group of mates. It's about four boys called... Uh, Vinay, Musa, Inua and Nish and their best friends and nothing can separate them until Vinay's cousin comes to stay from overseas and uh, Vinay's very excited he's got his new, this new room he's about to move into, his mum's pregnant and he's like I'm about to get my own space and all my mates can come and have sleepovers and uh, there's a bunk bed and he can have the top bunk and his mates can you know go into the bottom bunk every now you know they can take it in turns to have the bottom bunk and then this cousin turns up called Nikesh funnily enough and he just has to accept that this cousin is now in his life sharing his bedroom this is brilliant uh, ruining his life <laughs> uh, kind of uh, tearing apart his well not tearing apart but causing ructions um, in his precious gang his council of good friends and it's about him trying to deal with it but what I really enjoyed about this book is that he he chats to his mates about it, who are his council, oh, his that's council so of good, good friends, and they have yeah, and they have meetings about it. Like, well, what am I going to do about this cousin? And they all have their different approaches. One of them's a peacemaker. One of them's like, we declare war. Uh, you know, they all have their different approaches to it. And what I loved was um, just the the bants, for want of a better word, yeah. in this book, because they do banter. Like he's he's nailed the voice of of, of young boys bantering with each other. Like one minute they're talking about Spider Man, then they're talking about you know remembering something funny that happened at school. Then they're talking about emotions and yeah. and kind of he he weaves some real emotional intelligence through the banter, and that's what I think is quite special about this book. And I really enjoyed it and whizzed through it. What's it called again? Because it sounds amazing. It's called The Council of Good, Good Friends. Friends. It's not enough written about cousins. No, no. And also, there's also not enough that's written about male friendship that's kind of not superficial. This, this yeah. digs a little deeper into yeah. how they make each other feel by yeah. what they say. It's not afraid to show the boys getting upset. He describes that feeling of... You know when you're the world just feels unjust. Yeah. And people are telling you that you have to behave a certain way or what do you do that for or whatever. These emotional aftershocks of kind of when you're a kid you're just presented situations, you just have to deal with it. Yeah. And everyone's busy, you know, busy family, everyone's busy, they maybe haven't got time to sit down and go through everything with you. And, and you you know, Vinay takes himself off to a shed and feels miserable about things. And I really remember that feeling. It's a great read, it's funny. There's one of the most hilarious retellings of that fable about the scorpion and the frog. Do you know the one I mean? Yes. Where, you know, the scorpion begs the frog to take take him over the river so one of the kids is saying 
did you know that story? And uh, there's a whole passage which is the child retelling that story. It is hilarious. So, yeah, I really recommend it. And I think it's a great conversation starter. Oh, that sounds brilliant. So that's the Council of Good Friends. And as I was putting that back in my big towering book pile uh, next to my hammock, uh, an oldie uh, plopped out at me, which is a, a picture book, which I'm sure lots of people know. But I just thought, oh, I'm going to mention this just in case anyone doesn't know. It's called Bigu by Alexis Deacon. Do you know I don't book? know it. No. <gasps> no. Oh, it is an absolute classic. So it came out about 10 years ago. But I wanted to mention it because, you know, there might be some nervous school starters or people going back to school. And this little picture book is a gem. It's about an alien called Bigu who crash lands on planet Earth. And it's just, it's very simple. It's just her wandering around, trying to communicate with various people who don't (laughs) welcome her. And she eventually, I mean, it's not a spoiler to say, she eventually ends up in a school playground. Right. And, of course, everyone thinks she's fantastic. But there's a lovely little phrase at the end of the book um, when Bigu's been reunited with her alien parents. Bigu told her parents all about life on Earth, how Earth creatures were mostly big and unfriendly, but there were some small ones who seemed hopeful. Bigu would always remember those small ones. Anyway... It's just a lovely picture yeah, book, so and I good. want you to check it out if you're interested in adding a modern classic to your picture book collection. Yeah, I feel really bad because I've been using your picture book collection mostly to, you know, to waft the crisps. Well, don't I know it because all my pages are singed. <laughs> but they're also, look, there's an upside to this. All my picture books are delicious. <laughs> and after I... <laughs> Nibbles I give the them book a little lick. Is really into your book. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I am Nibbles the book monster. Nadia, look on the horizon. What's flying in towards the island? It's a small plane. I don't know, Frank. I'm eating crisps. <laughs> You don't have to. I'm not asking you to be specific about what kind of plane it is. Just say it's a plane. Yeah, I'm not. You don't I'm have not to say, it, oh, it's a Cessna. Is it, is it a plane, though? It is a plane, <laughs> but there's something unusual about it is that there's somebody standing on the wings of the plane. We've like, been saved! Finally, <laughs> I can go home! Why do you always want to leave this island? <laughs> I'm so happy Help. here. You're so miserable. <laughs> It's landing, Frank. It's landing. There's only one person who could be coming to the island of Brilliant on the wing of a plane. And that is Catherine Rundle. The unfeasible Catherine Rundle. Best-selling biographer of John Donne and tightrope walker. And she's tightrope walking over to the island right <laughs> of now. Of course she is. Of course she is. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Hello. How lovely to be on your island. Welcome. Excuse our coral. Would you like a crisp? <laughs> Would love a crisp. Handmade crisps. <laughs> Thank you. These are France homemade crisps, I warn you. Um, it's lovely to see you. Um, can I take the plane back? Yeah. Yes, I, I can pilot anyone back no. who needs to come. No, Frank says, no, you live here now. Sorry. Do you have any snacks, Catherine? First things first. Not to just pat you down <laughs> for snacks, but I, I, am, I am absolutely starving. Well, I think the best thing... <laughs> while reading is you know that scene in Little Women where Joe March gets like a bushel of apples it took me a really long time to realise a bushel is like a like a sack of apples so I have brought a bushel of apples really oh thank you 
Nadia, you're so insincere. She's not insincere. What? What? <laughs> I am happy about the apples. Can you not? This is really embarrassing. <laughs> Catherine, I'm just relieved that you bought a bushel of apples and not a bushel of tarantula. That was the other option. Because we've seen this clip of you eating a tarantula and we're kind of hoping that we have a tarantula problem. And we're kind of hoping, <laughs> we do really want to talk about your books, but we're kind of hoping that you are the solution to our tarantula problem. And we're going to release you as apex predator. Yeah, you're going to be the apex predator of the island of Brilliant. <laughs> right, like getting a cat group. Um, there is there is a video of me eating a tarantula online really? around the time that I wrote oh The Explorer because I had said that all the food in my books I have always made myself but then I hadn't with the tarantula and then I felt very bad and worried that I was you know perpetrating fake news so I said well I'll, I'll eat it and then if, <laughs> if it turns out that I was wrong I'll edit it in the next edition and so I got a, a tinned tarantula and it was totally repellently disgusting having said in the Aww. book that they were surprisingly lovely but it was tinned and I, my feeling yes. is that a tinned anything is so many miles from the reality of the freshly cooked freshly caught version and it really wasn't a very good experiment you know it had a, a floor right at the heart of it yeah what you need is an organic exactly. range tarantula because those it's, it's, it's a completely different experience <laughs> and we've got them we've got loads <laughs> because in the explorer you say it's like fishy chicken like mostly like fish um because when i went to the amazon rainforest and i spoke to some indigenous children about what it would be to eat tarantula um they all said that they liked them and that it was a little bit like like eating fish from the sea oh my goodness what a lot of trouble it is to write a children's <laughs> book and <laughs> you had to go to the amazon and eat some arachnids and consult people and it is a lot of bother and so why why do you go to that bother, Catherine? Because you could have a fantastically comfortable academic career. You know, you you, you have written a best-selling biography of John Donne. You write for the LRB. You've got an amazing uh, anatomy of rare animals. You could be having kind of a lovely, comfortable career with people serving you beautifully cooked tarantulas <laughs> at high table. Why why are you knocking around the forest writing kids' books? What, why are you slumming up why are you slumming up with, with us? us? Why are you what here? Yeah. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly. So I think it is almost impossible to say this kind of thing without saying sounding a little bit mad and grandiose. But it is my favourite kind of writing. And it is my favourite kind of writing because you're giving children a blueprint for how to be a person in a difficult and beautiful world. And you're trying to teach them what it might look like to be happy. And I think there is nothing I love more than writing for kids because kids are, and they really, truly are. It's not just something we say to flatter our audience. They are the best readers because the stuff they read, especially the age I write for, which is sort of 8 to 14, I guess, um, they take the stories and they go into their blood and into their bone and cartilage and they just walk around with those stories until they die. And I yeah. find that so exciting. The idea that you you get so close to your child reader. With adult readers, you're talking to them across the table and with a child reader, you are cheek to cheek and whispering in that ear. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Can I ask, I'm interested to know what books you read in that uh, you know, and I'm sure you read many, but what are the books that really resonated with you when you were that age that have seeped into your bones? 
I think all the ones, a person of the age I am, I'm 36, you would expect love. So I adored Diana Wynne-Jones, The Moomin, Addington, Narnia, The Hobbit, Ursula Le Guin, Alan Garner, Philip Pullman, those books which offered children untold splendours. And the thing they all have in common, I think, is um, a complete refusal to talk down to children, often to the point of being very, very opaque, like Alan Garner, or quite ruthless, like Philip Pullman, mm -hmm. um, always a kind of um, stern quality. You know, Diana Wynne-Jones is as sardonic to children as she would be to a, a 45-year-old with a cigarette and a gin. You know, she she offers the totality of her intelligence. And and so I just, I just adored those books. Yeah, I think you can, I think kids can smell a mile off when uh, a writer is talking down to them, is not looking them in the eye when they're right, or being truthful in that way when they write. I think they're the quickest, they're the harshest judges and the quickest people to, to notice, I think. Yeah, I think they can smell it. The other thing about the, those people that you've listed, mm. it's not just that they're not patronising, is it? It's that they put their whole selves in. So, like, all Tuva Janssen's sorrow about losing her mum is in those books. All Alan Garner's crazed identification with a tiny, tiny piece of Cheshire is in those books. Uh, you, you know, every, they put everything of themselves into them. That's what's kind of amazing, which is a, which is my neat segue <laughs> yeah. to Impossible Creatures, which I've just read. You know, um, that's your new book. And it's very, first of all, it's very different from your others because it's a fantasy book. Yeah. What made you do that? What made you shift to a book with fictional maps and an archipelago and all these other so things. So I had always wanted to write fantasy. Um, I think for partly the space for deliciousness it gives you um, and invention and sort of wishfulness um, because the the uh, premise of Impossible Creatures is that there is an enchanted cluster of islands called the archipelago in the North Atlantic Ocean and there every creature of myth that humanity has ever made um, still live and breathe and thrive and those myths were documentaries and you can still get to those creatures if you know how and that meant both all the creatures of myth that we're very familiar with like you know, dragons and centaurs but also the creatures of myth that we have largely allowed to drop out of the public consciousness like almirages which are Persian horned hairs that you find in 12th century manuscripts or um uh, carcadans, which are a kind of purplish, dark unicorn with poison-tipped horns and their flesh hangs off their skin and they eat people. Um, and so every single one of the myths, the creatures in the book, does already exist. I did not invent them. They come from our great oh. budget of myths that we have. And I just, wow. I spent oh. hundreds of hours in a library and it was just, you know, being someone who is by birth a dork, it was just such a delight to spend that time reading about. I hadn't clocked that. You know, the back of the book, there's this huge glossary of animals, which is a bit like your book, The Golden Mole, which is this glossary of threatened animals. And I had not realised that these are all, as it were, real, that you haven't made any of these up. I thought you'd made some of them up. No. So Almirages are real. Almirages are real. They are all real. I really also should have made that really clear. Just like one line in the book to be like, by the way, kids, these all exist in the history. Um, Almirages are real. Yeah. Ravelins and Longwas, they are all things that we have conjured. And of course, 
I also wanted it to be a little bit about the idea of the spectacular wonder that the world demands of us. The archipelago demands the wonder of the archipelagians. But we used to think that unicorns were real and giraffes were fictional. That's such a great sentence. Our creatures are as remarkable, you know. If we if we didn't know, we would be as stunned yes. by a giraffe or a swift or a hedgehog. I mean, you know, like someone bred yeah. a mouse with a hairbrush. And so yeah. I wanted that. Um, That's before we get to platypuses, by the way. I mean, the platypus. The platypus <laughs> looks like it was invented by a... You know, a god with a joke and a hangover. It is, it is just extraordinary for me. <laughs> but that's so true because if you, yeah, I mean, you could look at, I mean, the Golden Mole is such a beautiful book. You write so passionately and richly about these about these creatures. But yeah, imagine imagining that those are all mythical creatures is kind of a, a neat trick, mind trick you can play with yourself. And of course, sadly, I suppose some of them may one day be mythical and that's, exactly. that's the point but ah, that's fascinating so research wise what was your process for this book then and and, and also in the writing process as well I'm really interested yeah. to know did you uh, read about a mythical creature and then kind of just run away with that or compile a huge stack of notes about the kind of creatures you wanted to include and not include yes a mythical bestiary so it started in that very, very cold autumn winter of 2016 when I wanted to write about a girl with a coat that allowed her to fly, but only when the wind blows. And, um, and I wrote a very short story called Beware Low Flying Girl. And the idea was that when the wind blows, this girl, the corners of her coat, and it will lift her off her feet but she has to learn how to judge the wind because otherwise she'll fall to earth. And then I wanted a world that would be big enough to have her in it. And in terms of research for the book, I have a document for each mythic creature. There are 21 in the bestiary, but there are close to 100, probably about 90, um, that I have on my computer. And so the next book, this is a trilogy, the next book will have an entirely new bestiary and the one after that, another one. Um, Because, you know, you know how both of you know that there is always more than you can put in the book. Yeah. And it was a case of sort of, you know, kicking things out and kicking them into the next book. And then I also wanted it to be, I don't tell children this and I don't plan to, mm-hmm. if you're a child, don't listen. But um, it's also based on a abortive epic poem oh. by John Donne, um, which uh, I don't think it's a selling point. <laughs> you never you never know. You never know. <laughs> there are some weird, there um, are some weird kids out there. Finally, the world is ready for... Um, but John Donne in 1601 wrote this book called Metempsychosis, an epic poem rather, and um, oh, yeah. and it was blasphemous. And so he never finished it, but it imagines a world in which there is the tree of knowledge and from the first apple of the first tree, there is born a soul. And that soul transmigrates, transmutates into, first of all, fish, a bird, a wolf, a pike, and then finally a person. And then he was going to write that soul every time the person dies entering a new baby and becoming many of the great mounds of history. So it was going to be Cain, it was going to be Copernicus, it was going to be Galileo. And then, of course, he, um, we know from Ben Johnson, Ben Johnson says, he repenteth highly and seeketh to destroy all the copies because that would be a pure blasphemy in 1601 um, because reincarnation would be blasphemous. Right. But the thing I loved about that poem when I read it was, well, what if that was true? What would that human life be like? Because they're not omniscient, but they have existed 
from a source of knowledge from the very beginning. And so they have lived as long as humanity has lived, which will mean they know all our horrors and cruelties and spites, all our glories, all our wit, warmth, generosity, care and invention. And so I wanted the book in some ways to ask the question, if you could see all that humanity was in all its glory and all its dread, what would you say to the question of humanity? Would you say, no, we are not worth the pain we inflict on each other? Or would you say yes? Would you say yes to the world, yes to living with the full untrammeled force of your attention? Would you say yes to other people? Um, and that question, yes or no, is the one that powers the book. It's amazing that Mal is a character that can carry that weight because she's very yeah. engaging. I mean, you just described the origin myth of the world. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. origin myth of, of the world itself and the question that yeah. ancient philosophers were asking, are we worth our own sorrow? And the book, should I spoil it, Frank? Should I say what happens at the end or not? What do you think? No, no. I'm getting, I'm getting a big head shake. <laughs> I'd be careful of spoilers because... I haven't, I haven't, I haven't started it yet, so I'm afraid. I will not so spoil it, and I cannot wait. So please don't. No, it's me. a brilliant ending. I don't, I don't think you should spoil it because it's a cracking ending, and it does make you want to read the next book. No. And we'll have some characters return. Um, so there's a boy from our world who goes into that right, world. Okay. Mal is from their world. She's around twelve. Christopher's a little older, yeah. maybe twelve, um, thirteen, fourteen, and he, um, uh -huh. he goes into the world unsure about what any of it will be but hungry for knowledge and for adventure and I always loved big adventure stories when I was a kid you know I loved the Count of Monte Cristo and the book also opens with this idea that Mal arrives in Scotland and turns to him and says uh, four words and it says some sentences have the power to change everything there are the usual suspects I love you I hate you I'm pregnant I'm dying I regret to tell you that this country is at war but the words with the greatest power to create both habit and marbles are these. I need your help. That's brilliant. I wanted the idea that Mal comes and unabashedly says, you will need to help me because I think outside of our island of brilliant, back on our island of Britain, we have created a world in which our politicians have implied that human vulnerability and human need and to ask for help is some form of moral degradation. Vulnerability and the need for help is the heart of the human condition and I wanted to offer kids the idea that maybe both asking for help and being asked for help they might shake you out of the preconceived idea that you would have that your day or week or life might run along they might push you off that path onto another but it might be better yeah that's fantastic I love the idea that ask, yeah reframing asking for help as an, an heroic act is a really valuable it's that the most empowering thing is to have a sense of purpose. I mean, that's the best way to be asked on an yeah. adventure, isn't it? You know, yeah. Narnia needs those children's help, and it says their importance. And what I love about Christopher, what, what you've done with the world, it's that it's half familiar to him. You know, he knows what a sphinx is, and he knows what Pegasus is. So there's that kind of mixture of like the extraordinary and the, and the new and the fantastical, and the things that are also like, oh, He's, he's always known them. That Those are creatures that we've known since before we knew what knowing was. You know, you've always known what a unicorn was. 
So I wanted to ask Catherine, do you, would you describe yourself as someone who is hungry for adventure? I think I certainly was as a child. And I think I have taken advantage of being a children's writer to cast some of the things that I have always longed to do anyway as serious right. grown-up research for my literature. Uh, but are in oh, fact... really? Like what? Like going to the Amazon, like learning to fly a plane or learning a flying trapeze or, you know, um, the little things that you do in order to try to make your book more real. I mean, these are not little things, Catherine. I have not done any of these things. So I'm very impressed that you think these are little things. Just fly the play, just go to the Amazon, a little bit of tightrope walking. I, I maybe reach over to the furthest bag of crisps. You know, that's, that's, maybe, that's how much I stretch myself. So these, are, these don't sound like little things. Um, but that's amazing. And also, do you still wander about uh, on rooftops? I do a little. I stopped during the pandemic on the grounds that an overwhelmed hospital system did not need some idiot who had just shattered her ankle by falling off a roof. <laughs> um, but occasionally I do because to see the world from up high is a way to know a city that is otherwise very hard to achieve. How fantastic! Because you've lived, you've lived all over the place, haven't you? you, you uh, so just run us through it for, for our listeners who may not be aware. Um, where did you grow up and how did you move My on? father worked for international development and in aid. He's currently in Mali with the UN working on counterterrorism. And my mother was a French lecturer and French teacher. We were in London and then in Zimbabwe. We were in Brussels. But the, the main chunks of my life were, were them. And then my teenage years, much to my relentless resentment, were in Belgium, <laughs> um, which is why there is a okay. joke about Belgium in every single one of my books. About which Belgians have been very nice. You know, I got a nice note once from the ambassador being like, yeah, you know, crack on, what are you going to do? Um, but uh, Oh, no, what was it about Belgium? What, did you, was it just that you resented going somewhere new after, you, after, after being in Zimbabwe? Was that the main issue with Belgium? It was partly I didn't want to leave Zim, and Zim still has my heart, yeah. and it was where so many of my friends lived um, and where such beauty was. And it was also the other job my father could have taken was Paris. And uh, <gasps> and I find that hard to forgive. <laughs> Do you still bring it up? Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Daily. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? When you get off your island, will you go home to England or will you go travelling around the world? I'm off to Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> I love a bit of Milfree. I don't know what's wrong with Belgium. And actually, I think there's more, you owe more to Belgium than you think because you are the person that most reminds me of Catherine Rundle is Tintin. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it's Tintin, isn't it? It's like, let's go. Yeah. Let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> do you have a small dog? Do you have a small I dog, I have Catherine? no small dog. I, my partner has a large black Labrador instead of a small white duffy thing. But, That'll you know, do. It's, I guess it's That's a start. Fine. I confess, That's I fine. was never a Tintin yeah. girl, so I'm not really aware of what goes on in that world. I was so soundly team Asterix. Yeah, uh, you know, but uh, but my understanding is he, he has a quiff. I could do that. That's yeah. basically my <laughs> understanding of Tintin. He has a quiff. I like what he wears. He looks like he's in a Scottish indie band in the early eighties. He, he does. He looks like Edwin Collins. Did Tintin do Rip It Up? Because I love that <laughs> tune. It's a great tune, and that's all I know of Tintin. Also, that people, you know, don't French people say Tintin, and occasionally say Tintin. 
Catherine, I'm interested to know if you... So you have no plans to leave the world of children's books, because I know you have this, this is the question. parallel career writing, writing your other fantastic books. Are you happy here? Do you enjoy splashing around in the world of children's literature? And as part of that, do you enjoy going out and about? Do you enjoy events and, and kind of reading and meeting readers? My hope is to die with a children's book nearly finished. Oh, I think I will lovely. always also write for adults because of course there are some things about writing for adults. Your, um, the fact that you're allowed to swear, um, <laughs> you know, um, some of the references that are allowed to fit into a more adult hinterland. But children's fiction will always seem to me yeah. the best challenge and the most vivid and distilled kind of writing. I wrote a book called Why You Should Read Children's Books Even When You Are So Old and Wise that argues that what if children's fiction is actually the the boiling down, the distilling of everything that matters. You know, what if it is about endurance and wit and jealousy and betrayal and care and love and Invention. What if that is what children's fiction is offering us? Uh, a distilled version of our most vulnerable human heart. So it makes the argument that in that case, children's literature is a kind of literary vod. It is, it is the boiled down quality of our soul. And that idea of distillation and of trying to tighten and tighten and clarify and clarify that discipline, I, I love and I am not leaving that anytime. Well, that's fantastic news for all of us. I suppose I'm interested because you straddle these two different worlds. So you would, have you noticed a difference in terms of how much, I don't know, literary respect <laughs> you were afforded in kind of one world compared to the other? By which I mean, I sometimes think in children's literature, you can fly under the radar and almost get away with more because people aren't really looking at you seriously because you're just yeah. kids' books. So the way I get treated if I tell people that I wrote a book about John Donne and it won the Bailey Gifford is totally different than if you tell them that you wrote a children's book and it won the Blue Peter Prize, even though the Blue Peter Prize is better. Wow. I, I know Frank gets this too all the time because Frank writing brilliant award-winning children's books and brilliant films. I imagine Frank gets treated totally differently depending on which one you say you do, Frank. Frank's universally oh, yeah. disliked by everyone though. Catherine. Everybody. That's the problem. <laughs> Just always despised. <laughs> the two most despised professions. Screenwriter. Sorry, I couldn't oh resist. dear. I, was, I couldn't resist the kicking. No, I mean if you're publicising a film, they send a car and they give you treats. <laughs> they send you up a red carpet with camera lights flashing, and they they drop when the writer goes past. That's okay, but you're in that kind of world. And if you're at children's books, yeah. it's like you know. Here's the bus timetable. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's literally true because I had a film in, um, at San Sebastian Film Festival a few years ago and I took one of the kids and they came back with like, it was incredible. We had a car, we had red carpets. It was phenomenal. So one of my daughters, well, the next thing I was going to the Frankfurt Book Festival and my younger daughter said, I'm definitely, definitely coming. And they literally sent us the bus timetable. And they put Aww. us up in this... Um, in this hotel that we walked past about four times because it was covered in scaffolding. We didn't couldn't see it. And we woke up in the morning, there was somebody working on the windowsill. It was just, and I won. I, that was at Frankfurt and I won a, a big prize. I won a Jugend Literature Prize. So it was a very, very different world. And that's a good thing because there is nothing more yeah. smothering to creativity than prestige. You know, 
that I, I think one of the reasons the Beatles are so extraordinary is that they got out before the world took them seriously, you know. Right, yeah. I think this is so true, Frank. I think if I were king of the world, I would change one thing, which is that I would magic into being a double-page spread to talk about children's fiction in every newspaper weekend. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, imagine. So that people would know what to give their children because that is so important, so that they would just have access to the knowledge of what's out there. But also because I think talking about what children's fiction are doing is often a way of talking about our anxieties for our children and our dreams for our children, what we Mm. want them to know, what we want them to believe and trust in. I agree that if suddenly we had red carpets and um, enormous banners everywhere, we would become potentially flat. I think we've got to stay the sort of little, strange rebel brothers to the to the, the others. Yeah, invisibility is a superpower. Yes, I think we get away with a lot more with no one paying attention to us. I agree about the coverage. I'd like the red carpet thing maybe once, just to see what it was like. Could we just have one, just a one night only? All of us, all the children's authors on a red carpet, just going, <laughs> I'll make a little red carpet for you to take you to the We can have beach. a brown carpet. We can have a brown <laughs> carpet. It doesn't even have to be red. Just a carpet. I just want a carpet. Yeah, one of the themes of Impossible Creatures is wonder. And I have written on my wall this line from G.K. Chesterton, the world is not perishing from lack of wonders. The world is perishing for lack of wonder. And I think when Chesterton wrote that line, perishing was a kind of rhetorical flourish. But we're at the point where it's possible that the world, insofar as we can live in it, is actually perishing. And that it is precisely because we have not wondered enough at how extraordinary it is that we're alive and what a fragile miracle it is that there's life. And gosh, this is tending to a sermon, I'm so sorry. But that, so that kind of sense of wonder and the urgency of the sense of wonder, that's a theme in Impossible Creatures. Like, so what's the balance between the adventure and the that message that I mean message is the wrong word isn't it because it's more a feeling it's more it's more an emotion gone I've talked too much Catherine Frank that quote is the opening quote to the golden wall yeah, that GK Chesterton quote and it is I think the thing I think about all the time what is the value of our wonder and what is our wonder if you break down wonder what are its component parts and it is to do with attention and love and the awe that the world demands of us. I think so much of my work is bound up with this idea of the world demands your attention because attention is so closely allied to be loved as to be almost indistinguishable. And so with Impossible Creatures, that it is about extinction. Um, one of the creatures is at risk of extinction, the griffin, and the creatures are dying. It is, in some ways, an an obvious and easy metaphor talking about the world in which we stand, in which, because we have not taken due care, we risk losing everything, which would be a stupidity for which we could not be forgiven. And I wanted to take that idea that what is needed most from you is your wonder. And as you grow older, as you become an adult, that wonder needs to be active, enfranchised, political, galvanic wonder you have to do something with it it has to be wonder as an action as a verb 
And as a child, your job is to learn as much as you can and love as much as you can. And so I wanted to to couple that idea with an adventure that would grab you by the wrist and pull you along. Um, because I do also love plot. I'm not good at plot, but when I read plot, I love plot. And so um, I love the idea that maybe an adventure story is a bit like a sort of wave of delight, like a tsunami of delight on which you can sail a ship. And in that ship, there can be, you know, the thing that you want children to know because you believe it urgently to be true. And I think in the case of Impossible Creatures, it is your care will matter, your focus will matter, your endurance will matter, your love, your hope, your faith. Those will matter. And they are worth giving boldly. But it is something I think that we all struggle with when we are writing children's fiction. Because I have no interest in books that hector or lecture because that's not storytelling. Wow. Absolutely. And there's no... um... When we're, when we're talking about, you know, talking down to children and patronising children, there's absolutely no... If you begin to hector or you begin to lecture and all the rest of it, I think you've lost them immediately. And um, what you're describing is a completely different feeling. It, fe- it feels like readers will d- are just going to be immersed in this energy and, and carried along by this story. And I, I cannot wait to get my hands on it as soon as Frank can let go. <laughs> I'm passing it over copy. right now. There you go. Thank you very much. Um, It's just so exciting, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us on this island. We are not going to let you go just yet, if that's okay. Now, people seem to be visiting us and leaving behind more children's books for us to get through. So I'm asking you, uh, what do you have with you for us to read? So I'm going to leave you a new book. Um, One of the newest writers who I admire so much is Shana Jackson, because she writes such witty, sharp prose. And um, her new book, The Good Turn, is in my biplane, which I will bring for you. Um, she also has a fantastic series called The High Rise Mystery Series. And yes. I've also brought those in the back. That thing about not talking down to children. She brings children into her brilliantly ironical world. And I think I've not yet met a child who doesn't at all that. And then I have also bought some of my own old school favourites. Um, so I bought Charmed Life by Diana Wynne-Jones. Oh, um, one of my favourite ever. She, I think, was one of the first to write fantasy that has in it a, a thread of such warmth and wit and a very grown-up scepticism about other grown-ups. And mm-hmm. she once said in a letter to a friend that she felt that children must be taught not to be cowed by greater volume or age or authority. And the books are full of yes. um, oh. I also love her because I always tell this story. But when I arrived at All Souls College, I was 21 years old and, and you know, a, a clueless idiot. So they was given a sort of uh, mentor in college, the great uh, Renaissance scholar Colin Burrow. And he said, well, what do you want to do with your time here? And I said, well, I, I, w- I will write a PhD on John Donne, but really what I want to do is write children's fiction. Like Philip Pullman or Diana Wynne-Jones, my two favourite writers at the time. And he said, Diana Wynne-Jones is my mum. And it was just such a moment of startled delight. It's a Darth Vader moment. (laughs) Catherine, I am your mother. (laughs) That's amazing. That's incredible. I don't know Charmed Life. Very briefly, what's what's Charmed Life? So very briefly, predates Harry Potter by a good portion, but is about a young boy who discovers that he has nine lives enchanter 
and have to go and live in a castle full of wizards to be taught to be a wizard and there is someone trying oh to control all the magic of the known world and it is so so funny so clever and short when you read it as an adult you realize she was able to compress a huge amount into maybe 40,000 words it's so good fab well i'm having that one <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Catherine. it's, it's been, been an absolute great. joy thank you so much for having me i will get back on my biplane Catherine, i don't suppose you've got any room in your plane have you Actually, now I've offloaded my books, I do have a spare seat in the back. Ooh. If you can come. If I could hitch a ride, that would be great. Frank, before you get upset, I've got a permission slip here. Okay. It's been signed off by all members of the ukulele of trio. Okay. I have got permission to leave the island. I will be back, if only because I don't want you to get your hands on my books. I will can be I? back, but I've, I've got, I'm going to just go away for a little while because there's someone very exciting I'm going to have a chat with. You'll be can happy I, about it, I promise. Can I have some Twix while you're gone? Fine. To, okay. You can have two. <laughs> okay. But I will, I've counted them. I I've counted have. them I and I will have. be counting them You've on numbered my, them, on never mind counting them. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to wave you off. You'll be okay? Yeah, I'm excited. Will you be okay? To... I've left you some beans. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Catherine, this is so kind of you. Thank you. Do I need a helmet or do I just grip my teeth and hope grip for the best? Grip your teeth, hope for the best, buckle in and off we go. Okay. Buckle in. Is she not going on the wing? Hurrah! <laughs> you, bu- you buckle yourself to the wing, Frank. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't realise that. That's what I've been doing wrong. <laughs> That's why my hair's like this. What kind of windwalker are you, Frank? No kind of windwalker. Um, well, I guess, listen, I'll miss you, kind of, Frank. Yeah. But I'll see you very soon, okay? Okay, okay. Don't Bye. cry. Bye. 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 Well, as I wander alone along this tarantula-infested strand, I'm going to take comfort by picking up the convenient shell and listening to the words of wisdom of Emily Drabble from Book Trust. Hi, Frank. Hi, Nadia. It's Emily Drabble from Book Trust. Well, it's September. Autumn is coming, so I might add a few blankets to my hot air balloon book delivery. And I'm going to recommend some heartwarming books today. So, first of all, I want to recommend Finding Wonder by Lauren St. John, published by Faber. This book literally grabs you by the throat and it doesn't let go. By page four, Rue is an orphan when her dad dies as is out buying a lottery ticket. The lottery ticket turns out to be a winner, making Rue millionaire. It's such an exciting book. She ends up living with her wild Aunt Joni and they go to buy her dream horse, Wonder Boy. But he's stolen before they can even buy him. And then that starts a whole load of prize horses being stolen and Rue and Joni decide to investigate. It's a really, like, thrilling, dangerous adventure. Lawrence St. John is just a brilliant writer. I would have loved this book so much when I was about 10. It's a great read for any child who loves mysteries and thrillers. And for any horse-obsessed child, this book will be heaven. Now, for my second book, I want to recommend Brilliant Black History by Atanuke, illustrated by Kingsley Nebecki, published by Bloomsbury. As a former archaeologist, this book totally blew me away and it taught me so much. Did you know that the first humans in Britain were black? Migrating from other parts of the world about 12,000 years ago, they had dark skin 
and lived in Britain for 7,500 years before the first white Britons migrated there about 4,500 years ago. The revelations just keep coming for me. I had no clue about any of this. The whole book is deeply fascinating and fun to read for all children over about seven years old, I'd say. And the author Atanuke is such a compelling storyteller, so this book is anything but dry. And it's beautifully illustrated by Kingsley Nabeki. Just full of fascinating information, beginning with these first migrants and then going through Romans, Tudors, Georgians, Victorians, World Wars, and all the way up to the current black British culture. This is a comprehensive guide eye-opening and a must-read. I want to tell you about The Perfect Present by Petr Horacek, published by Otterberry Books. This is a mega adorable book. It's actually one of Booktrust's Storytime Prize shortlisted books this year, which means copies have been delivered to libraries taking part in the autumn. So we have two cats, Tom and Mott, who are best friends and share the same birthday. Tom gives Mott a feather, but could it be a feather from the most spectacular bird in the world? Mott gives Tom a marble, or is it the smallest planet in the universe? They kind of try and outbid each other with presents, but they joyfully realise the best present of them all is spending time with one another. They kind of remind me of Frank and Nadia on the Island of Brilliant, actually. It's heartwarming stuff, and the illustrations are so captivating and utterly charming. I think you'll love this book. And I'm not even really a cat fan, but it's a lovely, cosy book to share with little ones. From cats to my favourites, dogs. Shifty McGifty and Slippery Sam, Train Trouble by Tracy Cordroy and Stephen Lenton, published by Nosy Crow. I love Shifty McGifty and Slippery Sam and this year the doggy duo celebrate their 10th anniversary in children's books. So let's celebrate by reading this book. For anyone who hasn't come across these brilliant books yet, Shifty McGifty and Slippery Sam are reformed robbers, now bakers, who catch thieves instead. And in this adventure, it's all told in glorious rhyme, they are off on the Porient Express, and yes, you can expect a lot of puns in these books, going to Venice, and cats are back where they should be as evil villains in the form of Kitty LeClaw. Oh, she's evil! The illustrations are so delicious I could eat them and there's so much to talk about with the little one when you're reading it too. So much to point at, to count and interact with. It's a joy, I'm telling you. Read this and then read them all and then read them all again. And lastly, I want to recommend Gina Kaminsky Saves the Wolf by Craig Bargreen and Francis Martin, published by Little Tiger. When Gina Kaminsky reads Little Red Riding Hood, She's appalled at what happens in the story. It's such a horrible ending and it all could have been avoided had Little Red and Wolf not made three big mistakes. So Gina decides to go back into the story and help them out. It's hard work as the mum gives so many orders all at once. No wonder Little Red makes those mistakes. So Gina eats the cake herself. She doesn't take the shortcut through the woods. She throws the wolf a stick to get it off track so she can get to Granny first and save the wolf and she fixes all the mistakes. Love it. Um, it's not specifically stated in the text but Gina is neurodiverse and uses pictorial emoji language with her teacher to explain her feelings. So she's a confident autistic child who saves the day. So this is an ideal book to empower all children to be the hero of their own story. Um, 
It's a really lovely book. I highly recommend it. Thank you, Emily. And goodbye. There's no one else really to say goodbye to now, but from Jeff. Goodbye, Jeff, brilliant producer. And good night, ukulele oof. Sing me to sleep. Mm -hmm.